0: Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco. Our show is hosted in partnership with the CAP Center, UCSB. And guess what, folks? We have someone who's back, who you all know, who's now a kind of, um, you know, we had to get him away from the paparazzi and others just bothering him in a secure location, unknown to the public, so we could record this, and that is Dr. Matthew Taylor. So, Matt, how you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Brad. I The secure location is the basement of my house, so oh my I guess gosh. I gave it away a little.
0: <laughs> just ruined it. You're not used to being famous. Okay, well, we're going to have to, you know, I'll text your security guy. Um, well, you all know Dr. Taylor uh, from just the overwhelmingly incredible uh, Charismatic Revival Fury series that we did here on Straight White right J.C., I think many of you now know him on Twitter as basically the person that you look to for information about the New Apostolic Reformation, and rightfully so, because he's really just outlined uh, the history and contours in really a what I would call a field-defining way, in a field-changing way. Um, so just excited to have you back. I think I wanted to have you back for a number of reasons. One of them is just I think people want some updates. You know, hey, I, I learned so much from the series. I learned so much from you about the NAR, about NAR. but What's happening now? And are there new developments? Are there new things going on? So really happy to have you back today to talk about those things. Let's start here. You had a great Twitter thread the other day talking about the Republican Party, Donald Trump, 2020. Uh, Trump is looking weak. He's looking shaken. If this were a boxing match, he's kind of on the ropes and looking like he might go down. Uh, DeSantis is not. He's looking strong and he's surging. People want to know where are the New Apostolic Reformation linked apostles and prophets on this issue? Are they changing their tune? Are they sticking to their guns? Trump is still president. Do they have a new prophecy for 2024? You're the the guy who knows. So what's it look like from your seat?
1: So if you recall, um, in 2016, there were a few independent charismatic prophets, including Lance Wallnau, who really went all in on Trump. And then in 2020, you just had just a, a plethora of prophets, an entire world of prophets that were all saying Donald Trump is going to win in 2020. God has said he's the anointed for another term. He's going to get two consecutive terms. And then, of course, all of that blows up. Shortly after January 6th, right? Because this is what fuels January 6th. This is the story we're trying to tell in Charismatic Revival Fury. But shortly after January 6th, around April, um, there is a group of apostles and prophets, people who I would say were more kind of on the margins of Peter Wagner's world. Um, It's it's headed up by a guy, Joseph Matera, who was mentored by some of the people in Wagner's circle, but has um, kind of his own kind of connections to this apostolic prophetic stuff. They put together a joint statement called the prophetic standards statement and try to I mean, it's a very cautiously worded statement. They're trying to not say that everyone who's a prophet was implicated in this. They never name Donald Trump in there. Um, but they try to say, we need to have some standards. We need our prophets to kind of be follow certain strictures. We need the apostles to be in authority over them. The, if you go and read it, most of the people who signed that statement, I've never heard of. Right? They're not poor to the New Apostolic Reformation. A lot of kind of people joining in, kind of j- jumping on the bandwagon. I did talk to one prophet who was close to to Peter Wagner who um, signed that statement. Um, and he actually just, he. when I asked him about it, he got tears in his eyes and described how he had been basically blackballed um, uh, because of citing that statement. And he, the funny thing was, so if you read the statement, there's no, it does not mention Donald Trump whatsoever. And I, so I, I had just read the statement and he comes in and says, Well, I I made them take all the Trump stuff out of that statement. So in one of the earlier drafts, it really was very explicitly about Trump. And then they actually took that out. Um, So that was in April of 2021. But it was a very, it was kind of the margins of the prophetic world. Most prophets were still very attached and following in lockstep. And then you've got the Reawaken America Tour launching that summer. And so you've, you've had this continued mobilization around Donald Trump continued expectations. That fractured within the last few weeks. And so in the in charismatic revival theory, I described this show Flashpoint that is on Kenneth Copeland's Victory Channel kind of TV network. And this was really important for mobilizing people for January 6th. This is where Dutch Sheets and Lance Wall now were going on multiple times a week talking about the prophecies. Well, one of their co-hosts on there was, or co-panelists, was this guy, Mario Murillo, who's an evangelist, kind of prophetic evangelist guy, goes back a long time. Actually, comes from the Bay Area, there in California, and Marillo went on a tear within the last month, denouncing um, some of the prophets, who, some of the most like extreme Trump prophets who've really continued hammering on this Trump stuff. He's he's particularly targeting two prophets, Kat Kerr and Robin Bullock, uh, both of whom are very eccentric personalities. If you ever encountered them, but then he also goes after one of his co-panelists on Flashpoint named Hank Kudamon. Who has associated with them and is saying like we need to stamp out these false prophets, and that has just led to bedlam in the prophetic world. You had, all, I mean, there were over a thousand comments on Marillo's original blog post. You have kind of this new fractures. So Lance Wall now seemingly has gone with Marillo and kind of saying we need to rein in the worst of the prophets. So this it's almost like we've got like three camps now. You got the prophetic standard statements people. You have the continued kind of Trump prophets, and now you've got this in between group that is saying some of the worst of the prophets need to, to rein it in, um, but not fully ditching themselves from Donald Trump.
0: There's so much here because one of the things that you, and I know that I, I have a feeling what you're going to say here, but one of the things you made so clear on Charismatic Revival Theory is that the spiritual oligarchy of the NAR works because those within the oligarchic class don't. Disagree publicly, and I think that's what caught my eye uh, in the last month or two, and and what's caught some other people's eyes is like it seems like there is a little bit of like fracturing, as you say, and I'm wondering if if you think that signals a new development in the life of the nar and maybe a, a potential weakness because you know oligarchy works when the oligarchs all decide they're they're in cahoots together, uh, and if they turn on each other, there's there's going to be there's going to be trouble in the water. So is is that happening, or is this just sort of normal kind of struggles to figure out where they're headed?
1: It's unclear. Un, uh, some some analysts, when they saw that prophetic standard statement, saw, said, "Okay, well, here's a fracture." And there's some truth in that, right? Some of these prophets really have suffered in their careers because they signed that prophetic standard statement. And this prophet that I talked to was, I was like, "So who who is blackballing you?" And he's like. Just look at who didn't sign the state. Right. So even even now, even as he's on the outs, he doesn't want to name names. He doesn't want to, to take anyone down. In some ways, um, these most extreme Trump prophets like Kat Kerr and Robin Bullock are kind of easy targets because they've been so out there and sometimes playing footsie with QAnon and 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 saying so many things that have not been true that they really have kind of garnered a lot of hostility, even amongst the kind of follower class. What's interesting to me is Stephen Strang, who is kind of the the media mogul of the charismatic world. So he is the owner and operator of Charisma News, Charisma Media, all the podcast networks and empires of Charisma. And he seemingly has taken sides in this with Mario Murillo, and brought, Mar- has, has kind of platformed Mario Murillo on Chris News, has published these critiques of these prophets. Stephen Stratton is also one of the major sponsors of the Reawaken America tour. So, how does that exactly work, right? I mean, like, if, if you're trying to find who is with Trump, who's not with Trump, it's, it's a very confusing landscape right now. I would say most prophets are trying to kind of calibrate in gear for 2024, they are being expected to somehow call this thing that's going to be a very chaotic uh, Republican presidential primary and general election. And some of them know if they get this right, it could make their career. If they get it wrong, they're going to look like idiots. And many of them already kind of looked like idiots after 2020. And so I think what this, this, this fighting this infighting that you're seeing is this sense of anxiety. There's a really interesting clip. I put it on Twitter of Lance Wall <laughs> Mr. Trump 2016, Mr. Trump 2020, he, on his podcast, is is talking to Mario Murillo, and he says, you know, I have prayed about 2024, and all that God revealed to me was the passage at the end of the Gospel of John, where Peter asks, well, what about John, the Apostle John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, that's my business, not your business. And so, Mario, (laughs) you have have. Lance though, right? But the, the person who put it all on the line in 2016 and 2020 saying like, God is not revealing to me the outcome of 2024. So it is interesting that that principle does not apply retrospectively, but <laughs> for, for him at least, he's being very calculating right now, trying not to put his foot down on anything because he wants to see how things are going to play out for 2024.
0: Uh, it is nice to have that passage to to reference there, Lance. Ball. now I have already made my prediction, and that is the Rock twenty twenty four, and so I'm standing by that. I think the Rock will probably be the front runner going forward. But no it would have a no lot of amazing it.
1: biblical illusions if you could just have the Rock. I mean, like, right? Can you think of how many Bible references you could come up with for that one? I mean, this is a slam dunk. This is
0: gonna, you know, this is amazing. I don't know why people don't see it. So, all right. So I, last thing on this before we move on to talking about uh, one or two other issues, and that is uh, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is Catholic. He is already, though, through his politics and his rhetoric, really cozied up to what we might think of as the traditional religious right. The, the Southern Baptist, Reformed, Jerry Falwell, Billy Graham type, Christianity Today, a religious right, okay? And that religious right for a half a century has had a coalition with Catholics. And there's been no issue when it came at least to like electoral politics. If you're a Catholic, it doesn't mean we're going to be wary per se, at least because you probably are on the right side when it comes to abortion and when it comes to immigration and all this stuff. So if if DeSantis is there, I don't see that old school religious right having an issue. But you point out on Twitter that for charismatics, uh, there is still some sticking points at times with Catholic candidates. So I'm just wondering, is that going to be an issue in 2024 if, if Uncle Ron DeSantis is the guy?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some charismatic – I mean, there are charismatic Catholics. Like Amy Coney Barrett grew up in a charismatic Catholic community. So there's not – it's not necessarily Ron DeSantis is completely ruled out as a Catholic. I think because he's Catholic, right, I mean, you think about what, what Trump did, moving from even naming, understanding himself as Presbyterian to becoming non-denominational to really kind of cozy up to these folks. I think DeSantis is, has, has a further trick to make if he's going to appeal to these folks. And we, I mean, we excerpted. A clip from him in Charismatic Revival Fury, using this language of spiritual warfare, quoting Ephesians chapter six and swapping in the left for the devil. I mean, that's sending a signal. In I believe it was New Year's Eve into New Year's 2021 to 2022, Sean Foyt did a concert in Florida. And actually, it, I think it even went across the, the New Year's mark. And he brought Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis' wife, who had just had, who was going through treatment for cancer, on stage and prayed over them and and talked in glowing terms about Ron DeSantis and what a warrior for religious freedom he's been, so you you can see DeSantis becoming aware of and kind of calculating, okay, well, who are the important um, charismatic religious leaders like Sean Foyt that I should be reaching out to and that, frankly, there are a lot of NAR leaders who are headquartered in Florida, so he he's got a lot of people in his backyard that he can reach out to, I think it's going to, he's going to have to up the handering game, I think, if he's really going to win those folks over, especially from someone like Trump, who has such deep roots now.
0: That all seems fair. We'll we'll see. Well, I mean, we'll obviously keep an eye on that. But um, anyway, all right. Well, let's talk about the National Prayer Breakfast. A lot of people listening will be familiar with the National Prayer Breakfast. It's been an institution in Washington for uh, since the middle 20th century. Many of you will have either read or, or watched the series on Jeff Charlotte's The Family. Well, Congress, as you point out on Twitter, to take the National Prayer Breakfast away from uh, the Fellowship Foundation, which is the family that Jeff Charlotte writes about and, and the docuseries is about. So you have another event. It, you know, th- there's a vacuum, there's an opening. And so what happens? There's an event at the Museum of the Bible. And friends, if you don't know about the Museum of the Bible, um, it, it, it's a whole thing. Matthew's wanting to jump. Go ahead. Get, get, correct me.
1: So, so there's, there actually were three events this year. Okay. So if, if you remember back to some of the scandals in the Trump era, you actually had Russian operatives infiltrating the national prayer breakfast and using that as a space where they could reach out to politicians. The national prayer breakfast that started as this, like, let's get some lawmakers together and pray with the Fellowship Foundation leading had become this three-day carnival of religious leaders and politicians schmoozing and hanging out in D.C. And so you had all these lobbying groups that were starting to target this, including now foreign operatives and spies. I think Maria Butina was one of the spies who made it into there. And so um, this, there were people on both sides of the aisle, of Capitol Hill, who recognized this thing's become a bit of a debacle. And so um, they decided to intervene. So they took it away from the Fellowship Foundation. And so they had their own event. They created a new foundation. Supposedly bipartisan, and they did it at the Capitol, and that's where Biden went to. The family, the Fellowship Foundation, still had their events at the Hilton, right? They didn't, they didn't want to lose any territories. So they they kept their thing. A third group came in and created the alt-alt prayer breakfast. And this was Tony Perkins and Jim Garlow. Jim Garlow has deep kind of in ties, has really kind of uh become kind of one of the the top kind of peers of a lot of these NAR apostles. And um what What's fascinating about this event, so this 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 all is at the Museum of the Bible. It's from like 6 a.m. to 8.30. They didn't call it a breakfast because they didn't serve any food. So, But they still had a bunch of lawmakers show up at the breakfast hour to do this. And they, they called it a, a National Gathering of Prayer and Repentance. And so very, very kind of somber, somber vibes there. It starts out with Jim Garlow and, and Tony Perkins, who's... Kind of main, very, very mainstream of the religious right, kind of the heart of the religious right, Family then,
0: Research Council,
1: Family Research Council, right, and 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 then they have a shofar as the kind of opening music, and then they segue into a worship set, and the worship set is led by Alma Rivera, and that name probably doesn't register for anyone, but if you listen to Charismatic Revival Fury, the woman who is singing at the Capitol riot about. We cover the Capitol and the blood of Jesus, the woman who's on stage with Cindy Jacobs and Becca Greenwood from the NAR, that is Alma Rivera. So this woman who has led the liturgy at the Capitol riot, this charismatic liturgy, the music and worship at the Capitol riot is the one they bring in to lead worship at the Museum of the Bible for this alt prayer breakfast. And you've got all these lawmakers showing up. And sharing a stage with her. You've got multiple instances where they break in the, the, into the program to blow shofars. They have Jonathan Kahn, who was the keynote speaker at the Jericho March. He's the one that Che On references on January 5th, saying that the spirit of Jezebel has taken over the Capitol. He speaks, this Messianic Rabbi, Jonathan Kahn. So, like the all of these elements that we talked about in Charismatic Revival Fury that were the kind of religious genre and ethos of the Capitol riot is now being integrated into this alt prayer breakfast at the Museum of the Bible. You don't really
2: know what you can believe because there's so many sources saying so many different things.
1: It's weakening
0: trust between the media and the, the audience.
2: I'm pretty sure that I have shared fake news, but I didn't realize it until someone corrected me. No one knows what to trust and what not to trust anymore misinformation a threat to democracy public health and maybe even the human species as a whole or is it what does this word really mean and why has it become such a hot topic i'm dr susanna crockford an anthropologist who studies conspiracy theories and the ways they affect religious spiritual and other communities While there is a lot of talk about misinformation floating around, there are a few trustworthy sources where you can learn what it is and how it works in yoga communities, online message boards, wellness spaces, church congregations, and of course, social media. Come for the wacky ideas about biohacking and election rigging, stay for the research on the effects of these ideas on public health and democracy misinformation debuts may 24th 2024 and episodes will be released weekly find it anywhere you get your podcasts because misinformation matters see you
0: soon so okay so we've got these multiple events and we're talking about the museum so i just want to to zoom out a little bit right the museum of the bible is really bankrolled by the green family and the green family are the hobby lobby people so uh, if, and if you if you want some more info on this, listen to my interviews with Jill Hicks-Keaton and Kevin Kincannon, who wrote uh, wonderful books about, them. I mean, numerous works on this, and the Museum of the Bible and, and what it's like and and how it got to be what it is and blah, blah, blah. But all right, so we have the Green family, the Hobby Lobby people, and these are religious right people. Okay. Tony Perkins is Family Research Council. Okay. So this is an, uh, an organization that goes back decades, and it's not, as you're saying, Matt, it's not like... Associated with, sort of organically, with the NAR, with charismatic uh, networks, with Pentecostal networks. I mean, none of this world is really kind of built into the Family Research Council. And then you have this guy Jim Garlow, and I know that Jim Garlow is less of a household name for for many people listening. But Jim Garlow comes out of my backyard in Southern California, and your backyard, you're Southern Californian. I've been in the same room as Jim Garlow many times because when I was in ministry twenty years ago, twenty five years ago. God, I'm old. Just all right. Gonna have to edit this out. But um. Like whenever I was in ministry, at some point, uh, there uh, were like these conferences led by Jim Garlow, and I'm telling you, Matt, I sat in in a room at a conference where Jim Garlow was explaining to us how in his church he was going to have busts of Luther on one side, uh, excuse me, Calvin on one side, Calvin, and Wesley on the other. Because he loved the theology of both, and he had some way he was going to reconcile the long division between the Wesleyans and the Calvinists. What's the point? He gave off this vibe as like a kind of Southern California high, high theological uh, intellectual who wanted to kind of show off what he knew about Calvin. Now he's the guy who introduces the folks with the shofars, right? And he brings on Alma Rivera to stay. I mean, I, you know, I. Happy for you to jump in here. I'm just saying, not only is Tony Perkins in the Green family here, but Jim Garlow kind of read the tea leaves and went to the guy who wanted to be like, oh, yeah, let me quote Calvin to like, oh, let's bring up Alma Rivera and uh, let's get the chauffeurs on stage. So anyway, that's just want to like make sure we have that in in the the context of this whole event. So um, what else do we need to know about what happened here with uh, the Museum, Museum of the Bible uh, uh, event? And even a little
1: more background on Jim Garlow in terms of the NAR. So like we talked about in Charismatic Revival Fury, how Wagner has an inner circle. Garlow was not in that inner circle. Yeah. He was close no. to a number of the people who were. Yeah. And what happens is as Wagner's retiring, there are a number of, there's a lot of shifting that goes on in these NAR circles. And Garlow seems to kind of ingratiate himself into that world. A lot of this has to do with organizing around, I believe it was called Prop 8, the anti- gay marriage proposition in California. And a lot of these NAR leaders in California were mobilizing around that. Che On was very important to that. And then Garlow was also very important to that. So a lot of these folks kind of made common cause against gay marriage in California. And um, so, and then Garlow was, he, Trump advisor, was a very important Trump advisor. And he, when we talked in the series about these election integrity prayer calls, where you have apostles and prophets leading in the season between the 2020 election and January 6th, these kind of mobilizing prayer calls where you have Mike Flynn and Mike Lindell and Doug Mastriano calling it. Jim Garlow was the guy who organized that along with Michelle Bachman, the former congressman. She's kind of Jim Garlow's right-hand person. Again, this event at the Museum of the Bible ends with (laughs) Michelle Bachman speaking and praying, right? So... I think what I see happening in this Museum of the Bible is this, this deep integration, independent charismatics, NAR leaders, into the religious right, into what what you could think of as the very heart of the religious right. There's a George W. Bush advisor, uh, Andy Card, who once had made this comment about um, the fringe has become the carpet. And I think that is what we are also seeing in the um, religious right right now. These people who would have been laughed out of the room in 2007, 2008, are now kind of being integrated into the very heart of religious right networks and mobilization. They, They are recognizable names and even recognizable faces in those spaces, such that they get top billing in this Museum of the Bible event, alongside Kevin McCarthy.
0: Well, and I'll just add one thing here, and that is people say, well, if Trump's gone, are they going to be gone? Because Trump was really their way in. And it's like, you know, you laid out so wonderfully in the series that, look, this is the part of American Christianity that's growing. This is where the numbers are. You don't, you're not saying goodbye to the NAR folks, because if you do, you're saying goodbye to millions of voters. So no, they're not going anywhere. They're in the building. They're now the carpet. And they're now on stage. And they're the headliners because they bring... The people you need if you're going to win any elections. So, all right, before we run out of time, I want to get to something that I, I'm, be, I'm getting asked this a lot uh, when I talk about my own book, and I think you probably get asked this a lot too, way more about this than I do when it comes to uh, independent charismatics, and that is eschatology, the end of the world. Um, I, I think there's a lot of folks that are kind of realizing that there is a desire on the part of the people we talked about in Charismatic Revival Fury, the New Apostolic Reformation cosmos, but also a lot of just Christian nationalists in general. They want dominion, to use the word, over the United States government and every other sector of society. That doesn't seem to line up well with a premillennialist, pre-millennialist eschatology, meaning if you think Jesus is going to come at any moment, why do you want to be in charge of the world so badly? There's an easy jump to say, well, they're no longer premillennialists, they're postmillennial. So that means there's going to be a thousand years of reign on earth and they will be a key part of that reign as God's uh, you know, faithful servants. So here's the question, Matt. Is, is it just too simple to say that the, the rise of uh, Christian nationalism, the cultivation of dominionist theology, the seven mountains mandate, and everything else we talked about in Charismatic Revival Fury leads to a post-millennialist eschatology rather than one that expects Jesus to come at every moment and the whole world to end.
1: Let me see if I can do 200 years of theological history in two minutes. So American evangelicalism in the 19th century, so the 1800s, was very post-millennial. And don't don't worry too much about the millennium and a thousand years. Just post-millennial means the church builds the kingdom of God on earth. Right. And so Jesus comes back and congratulates the church as opposed to Jesus comes back and fixes everything. So in the 19th century, you've got the temperance movement and the abolition movement and um, the women's suffrage movement. All, all these things are all kind of connected to evangelicalism. They're kind of campaigning for and against the death penalty and for and against slavery. But they all think we need to build the kingdom of God on Earth. After the Civil War, there's this deep disillusionment that sets in in American evangelicalism. And people, because you had evangelicals on both sides, believing that they were bringing about the millennial kingdom of God by slaughtering each other. And so, and especially as you start getting into the the world wars in the early 20th century, there's this, this deep sense of despair. And alongside that, there's a growing movement of premillennialism, and especially of what's called dispensational premillennialism that wants to kind of chart out eschaton through these different kind of eras or dispensations. And so that really takes hold in the 20th century in evangelicalism, starting with fundamentalism and then throughout evangelicalism. So this becomes the big kind of eschatology of Christians. This is where you get the late great planet Earth in the 1970s, right? And so when, be, when most people talk about evangelicalism, the, 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 the million-dollar phrase that they have for the cocktail parties is dispensational premillennialism. In the 1970s. A, so, this,
0: so this is Left Behind series, right? This is yep. where we, right? Okay. So rapture, if you're listening at home. Yep.
1: Yeah. So this, it, whole, this whole conception of the rapture, left behind, thief in the night films, right? Like this idea of that at some point, Jesus is just going to pop on the scene, take all the Christians away, and then the world's going to go to hell until Jesus comes to fix it again. Starting in the 1970s, you have this group of Reformed theologians called the Reconstructionists. This is R.J. and his son-in-law Gary North, and a bunch of other guys very much steeped in Calvinism who start to reinvigorate post-millennialism. And they are the ones who create this kind of dominion theology. They're the ones who start talking about imposing biblical law on America. And so you start to have this revitalization in some circles of a post-millennial framework. So when the NAR comes along, Peter Wagner eventually kind of grabs hold of this dominion theology and also almost fully outright comes out and says, I'm a post-millennialist. He actually makes a joke. I'm a pan-millennialist, pan-millennialist, because God's going to have everything's going to pan out in the end, right? Which is just a very evangelical dad joke. But Wagner really kind of embraces this more post-millennialist frame because they want to take dominion over the earth. Not everyone follows him. And so what you get in the independent charismatic world is a real mix of different theologies, different eschatologies, and but where they all are in agreement, I'd say you have some premillennialists, some even people who might call themselves amillennialists. They want to kind of get out of this business of figuring out what the thousand years is going to be about. Some postmillennialists. They're all in agreement on rejecting dispensationalism. They're all in agreement on rejecting this kind of careful outlining of history in favor of what they would call victorious eschatology. The idea of victorious eschatology, which is this kind of nice way of blending all these things together, is the church has to keep fighting until the end. Whether Jesus comes back or what, and raptures us all away, or whether Jesus comes back at the very end, we got to fight like hell because we are responsible for building the kingdom of God. And so what victorious eschatology does is it gives space for narratives of persecution alongside narratives of dominion. So you can have simultaneously, and Sean Foyt is, is, you hear him using this rhetoric a lot. The light is getting brighter and so the darkness is getting darker, right? So this idea that, that as revival comes, as we conquer more of the earth, Satan and his forces are going to mobilize more against us, and this becomes licensed then for even more extreme rhetoric of spiritual warfare.
0: I, you know, I, I appreciate you laying out the fact that it's not really simple, and and I think this sticks with everything you did on the charismatic revival series because it, it's not about straight theological lines uh, in the New Apostolic Reformation, uh, and and it, and in many ways, the feet really the the feet really lead the. The mind, rather than the mind leading the feet, it seems like what's happening on the ground. It seems like what's happening in churches, uh, in in the sort of political spaces, in the Sean Foyt rallies. Those are leading to reconceptualizing eschatology, and right, you can imagine if if we're out here fighting the devil to take back the country and the world, to beat down. Spiritual enemies, then why would we want Jesus to come back any moment because that would what are we fighting for, and you can just sort of see some of the like we're gonna have to reshuffle how we think about what it means for Jesus to return or for the apocalypse to happen because that but you know i I don't know about you, Matt, but when I was growing up in evangelicalism, we just thought Jesus could come at any moment, and that really shaped you know yes, it would be great if we had a Christian president, but it would also be great if Jesus came and everything was was ended um I think what we're seeing is not only that idea really going by the wayside, at least in its most pure forms, but what was fringe in Rush Dooney, what was fringe in the NAR, is now not just taking hold in those spaces, but it's it's kind of as everything we talked about taking hold in, you know, evangelicalism writ large in the United States, and I think that's something that is is just worth taking, you know, keeping an eye on and, and looking at. Um, I also think that if you're at a, a cocktail party and the, 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 the cool kids are using the words premillennial dispensationalism, you should say that you need to go to the bathroom and then just walk out the door and not, co- not go back. That's a, just a piece of advice I want to give to people. It's free. I'm not going to charge you for it. So anyway, all right. Other than that dad joke, Matt, uh, anything else we need to know about just this, this discussion about eschatology or you know, anything you want to leave us with going forward just in terms of uh, how things are looking uh, since we last talked to you regarding you know the new apostolic reformation american politics and so on
1: there's so there's a word that sometimes you'll hear ecumenism and ecumenical and the, the term ecumenism as most people mean it is this kind of liberal coming together of different forms of christianity right ecumenism means kind of cross-pollination or discussion between different branches of christianity um and Typically, when people talk about ecumenism, it's it's in reference to mainline Protestants dialoguing with Catholics, dialoguing with the Eastern Orthodox folks. And so it's all these kind of diverse groups of Christianity that are all kind of liberal in some sense, or have liberal wings that are talking to each other. I've thought for a long time, we need to also recognize that there is a deep ecumenism on the right of, Christ- of American Christianity. And you have, um, starting in the 1970s and 1980s, Mormons and conservative Catholics, evangelicals and fundamentalists all kind of coming together. Like we can set aside some of the theological differences we have so that we can advance. And Francis Schaefer, who's a very important philosopher in that religious right world in the 80s, talked about we're co-belligerents, right? We are all belligerent. We're all fighting against something and we are fighting against the same things. And so we can set aside our theological differences for now. And I, I think that that has continued into today. And so what you're seeing is not that everyone is becoming NAR or everyone's becoming Reconstructionist, right? But the radical traditional Catholics, the rad trad Catholics and the insp- Reconstructionist inspired reform folks and the NAR, and independent charismatic folks can all come together in a space like the Museum of the Bible, can all come together on eschatology and say, hey, look, we all have different interpretations here, but we can all agree that we need to beat the crap out of our enemies. And that, I think, is more the unifying force. And that's the way that the culture wars have, in some ways, shaped a different form of right-wing ecumenism, um, where they, these people are willing to let their differences sit in the back seat for a while. And I think that's really important to recognize, but I would also make the observation that what we saw at the prayer breakfast, what we saw on January 6th, is this charismatic spirituality has become a, a language that has become more and more accepted yeah. in all those spaces yeah. because it's so popular, and because that's a growing part of Christianity. That that charismatic, that the, the shofars and prophets and all these sorts of things, in a way that that it is not what you would expect in an ecumenical space where you'd find kind of a merging together of everything. In some ways, that that charismatic spirituality has become kind of an underlayer that that's that's supporting all of
0: no I, I i think it's a great point to 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 finish on i i think what we're seeing over the last you know decade or so is that the it as you're saying it's not that every every reformed person is like oh i'm going to become nar or go to go to a, a a you know a a pentecostal church it's not that uh the southern baptists are no longer existent but i do think if i think back to the late 20th century you had standard language that was used and it was kind of like you know i I, I lived in Europe several times, and you know, you get together with Europeans, right? From Italy and Spain, and and Slovenia and Sweden. And what language are they going to speak? They're all going to speak English, and they're all going to speak English in a certain sort of European way. Like certain words and phrases are going to be uh, kind of uh, you know morphed from what we might think of as the Queen's English or American English. But nonetheless, they're all going to get together, and the language is going to be English. In the '90s, when you got together, the language was often like the purpose-driven church. Right or stuff you heard on Focus on the Family. What it feels like now is when they all get together, the language is spiritual warfare, and it's all NAR. And so you still might be Catholic, you still might be Reformed, but there's just this sense of like when you when they start talking Dominion, they all got together and they're using this this language. And I think that's what you know your series shows us. And I also think what you're kind of driving at here. So all right, we got to go. As always, you know, people want to link up with you. I know you're going to have some exciting news soon. Uh, and developments and things that you're going to want to share with us. But for now, um, you know, what, uh, what what are the best ways to get a hold of you, um, you know, the paparazzi and, and everyone else be damned? How can people still connect with you?
1: Well, I'm here in my basement, if you want to come here. <laughs> and um, I'm on Twitter, Taylor Matthew D. And you can know, always, I, I work at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. And we do a lot of public programming, including on Zoom got a YouTube channel with some of the past program. We do interreligious learning, also thinking about religious extremism, working against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. So our our website is www.icjs.org. That's great. Uh, you know, there's a nice idea people have of us
0: professors. We sit in mahogany chairs with, you know, leather, and uh, we, we wear these tweed coats and smoke pipes, but you're in your basement. I usually do this out of a storage closet. So anyway. All right. As always, find us at Straight White JC. Find me at Bradley Onishi. We have Venmo now, so if you're listening, and you're like, "Hey, that was great! Send us some some money on Venmo." That's a Straight White JC. You can find us on Patreon and appreciate all of you patrons. As always, we'll be back later this week with it's in the code and the weekly roundup. But for now, we'll say uh, thanks for being here. We'll catch you next time.